love you. Grateful for you. As you get your Bibles, let's all get our Bibles out. Open to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1320 on the Pew Bible in front of you. Last week we started this new series, Finding Ourselves in the Gospel, and we're looking at these first four chapters of this wonderful gift that we know as 1 Corinthians. And God has such a a generous heart and so much to show us and teach us and walk us through uh, in the weeks and months ahead as we go through 1 Corinthians. My heart just is overwhelmed with excitement about the things that he desires to say. So pray with me. Let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll look to him and his direction. Father, we thank you for you. As we begin to just recount and recognize and verbalize the power that you have and the things that you have done. It only bears witness to the things that you are currently doing and have in store for us, Lord. And we are so grateful. As your people, we stand in awe of you. As proof positive of your greatness and your power and your glory, we would never be where we are, who we are, apart from you. And we thank you for that and praise you for it. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word, that these aren't just random words that you've spoken, but these are the words that you have directed to be given to your people for all the ages. And so we receive them this morning as a gift, as if you were the one speaking directly to us, God. I pray that you would remove me from this equation and that by the power of your spirit, you'd speak through me, that each one in this room would have ears to hear and hearts to receive and the courage to apply the things that you have to say. We love you. And it is a joy to be loved by you. So will you take this time and banish all obstacles and just help us to hear from you and to be changed by you. And we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. So the gospel has come to Corinth. Not just any city, but this specific city. The gospel's come. A few... uh, ragtag people as every church begins with this sort of, you know, bad news bears group of people receive the gospel, are filled with the Holy Spirit. A church begins to grow. And this is exactly what's happened in Corinth. But this church is still very much under the influence of the culture around them. They live in a place that is Uh, very affluent, and that is uh, prosperous and educated. And so this is a culture that is very powerful. It's a powerful culture. You realize not all cultures are powerful. You live in an extraordinarily powerful culture right now. It's so wonderful 
that we can look at a passage of Scripture that will meet us exactly where we are today. The influence that Corinth was having on this church, in one sense, it could, it could seem extraordinary, but if you're a Christian today and part of a church today, then you would get it. Because you and I fully know how this culture is bearing down upon us and how it uh, continually seeks to uh, reach its tentacles into what God is doing here. Now, if you get your listening guides out, a good way to put it is the problem is not that the, there's a church in Corinth, but there's too much Corinth in the church. You see, the problem, you, if, you, if you just look at our culture today, you'd think, well, you know, my goodness, thank goodness for the church, because if there's ever been a culture that needed the church, it's the culture of today, right? So you could celebrate that. But the problem is, is that you can't get to that celebration because you can't get past the reality that there's so much of the culture in the church. Everywhere you look around the country, things that you read, things that you see, and I'm not talking about uh, secular things. I'm talking about things that come from uh, Christian sources and professing believers. So how, how do you, uh, if you're God, how do you, how, do you, how do you open up a letter? How do you start a letter that you're writing to a group of people where you are going to launch into this sequence of dealing directly with, with these hot-button issues. I mean, 1 Corinthians, they, they've got leadership problems, discipline problems, sexuality problems, singleness problems, marriage problems, divorce problems, idolatry problems, money problems, worship problems. they got problems everywhere. And all of these, as, you're, as we're going to walk through this, they're all hot-button issues. None of these are, are uh, going to be easy conversations. And yet, the way God addresses or moves into this conversation, as we saw last week, look at verse 2, is to address them. This is the, the, the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints, with a reminder that these people with all their problems and all their just immaturity and the mess that they are is a reminder, we talked about, that they're called to be saints. And then verse 4, Paul says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Christ Jesus. That, that is an amazing, an amazing thing to me. And so what we discovered last week is that clarity about our identity shapes our action. And so here, although all of these problems exist and all of these things are going to be addressed, the Bible is illustrating to us and teaching us the reality that 
These are just symptoms of the root problem. The root problem is identity. And that's what's manifesting itself in all of these ugly ways. Now, our flesh never takes a day off. It never, it, there's never a moment of your conscious life that your flesh is not trying to uh, yield its will upon you. And so what happens in these first four chapters of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is going to systematically deconstruct all of the counterfeit things that we use to find our significance and meaning. That's why we're finding ourselves in the gospel. That's the whole point of what we're talking about. This issue of identity and this issue of what makes us significant, what makes us matter. Okay, let's begin in verse 10. Verse 10. The Bible says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, well, I will follow Paul, or I will follow Apollos, or I will follow Cephas, or I will follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest any of you should say that I was baptizing in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So here we have this bustling metropolis of 650,000 people. This is a big city with a lot going on. And they have perfected the art of immorality, as we talked about last week. They, they are a place that uh, prides themselves on, um, on commerce and on achievement and on education and on philosophy and on uh, artistic expression. And so all of these things are, are highly elevated and they've become notorious throughout the world for their immorality. So naturally, anytime you have a culture in any time in history where there's a culture that elevates and prizes human achievement, you're always going to find the same thing. You're going to find highly gifted people in that culture. Because the culture is going to expose that because it's going to, it's going to draw that out of people. It's going to bring it out. There, there's gifted people in every culture, but you may not know that because there's no need to express that. But in a culture like this, they're going to be there. What about a culture like we live in today? 
Never before. Never before. And certainly in uh, the history of our country, the short, tiny little history of our country, but never before have I ever seen a culture more enamored and obsessed with human achievement than the one we live in right now. It is extraordinary to watch events take place and to realize how driven our culture is. We prize. Think about the things that we put on the highest pedestals in our, in our culture, and they all, every single one of them, comes back to what we perceive as human achievement. And so we make ridiculous big deals out of things that are ridiculous. They're ridiculous. I mean, we deify things that are absurd, meaningless. Games. People's ability to play a game. We deify them for that. So Corinth has this extraordinarily powerful culture, just like we live in today. An extraordinarily powerful culture. And Paul's going to come along. And he's not going to, he's not going to attack the culture. He's just going to bring to bear the gospel upon the culture because the gospel is infinitely more powerful than any culture that's ever been or ever will be. See, only the gospel can change people at the very core of who they are. So look, look at verse 10. Watch what happens. Paul says, I appeal to you. Really, the, it, it's family. When he says brothers, it's, he's saying, I appeal to you family by the name of the Lord Jesus. So this is an appeal. This is not a suggestion. Don't misread the, the translation, appeal, that word. No, no, this is a very strong word. And he's attaching the name Jesus to it to say, as an apostle, in the name of Jesus, I'm coming to you, family. I'm bringing this to your attention. That all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, some of you will remember that it wasn't too long ago that we had a conversation about disagreements and divisions in the church in our study through Philippians. But this is a completely different situation. There's a few minor similarities, but this is very different than that conversation. So it'll be very helpful for us to have this. That's why God puts these different things in Scripture for us. So when he says what, that, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, he's not saying that unity is the prize and that we have to, that everything else bows down to the prize of unity. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying uh, unity at all costs. He's saying truth at all costs, unity wherever possible. In other words, unity is good. If you're gathered around unified in the right thing, right? Now, let's just think for a second historically. Let's think of an example 
of a culture that was extraordinarily unified around the wrong thing. Nazi Germany come to mind? Unity at all costs is a disaster. It's a disaster. What we want to understand about unity is that in and of itself it's neutral. The value of unity is determined by its source. Unity is precious when it's around the right thing. But if it's not around the right thing, then it's not something to be prized. That's why truth always trumps unity. Now, how do I know this? Well, you know this. I know this. The reason I know this is because I've been reading the book of 1 Corinthians Every day for a month. So I know everything that's in the book of First Corinthians backwards and forwards. And I know that in just a few chapters, Paul is going to tell the very same church that he's talking to about unity. He's going to tell them to not associate with certain people within the church. So we know unity at all costs is not at all what Paul's talking about because... He's going to go the other direction in just a couple chapters. So he says, look at verse 11. We'll further understand as we go forward. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's some quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, well, I will follow Paul. I will follow Apollos. I will follow Cephas or I will follow Christ. Okay, now, so this report has come to Paul through Chloe. We don't know a lot about Chloe other than she's my niece. But other than that, um, here's what we suspect. Chloe is a, is a businesswoman. She's probably based out of Ephesus, which is where Paul is. And, but she has business that she conducts in Corinth, which pretty much everyone in that section of the world would do because that's the center of uh, where things were being imported and exported. So, so here's what most scholars believe was happening. Chloe is in Ephesus with Paul. She's hearing Paul talk about this great church and all the great things that God's done in this church in Corinth. But she has people who work for her that are coming back from Corinth and they're telling her, it's not that great. They got a lot of problems there. And they're doing a lot of things they shouldn't be doing. And so she tells Paul, she says, Paul, you might need to address some things because here's what I'm getting reports back about what's going on there. Now, here's what you need to understand about this. We all need to understand about this. Isn't it interesting? The Bible doesn't ever say, well, somebody told me something about you, and so now I'm going to have this conversation, but I can't tell you who it was. So please don't ever do that, okay? Some of you have come to me and said, hey, there's something I need to tell you, but you can't tell anybody I said it. And you only did that once. Because I'm not in junior high anymore. I've been out of junior high a long time. And so I don't operate in conversations like that, nor should you. 
If it's true, we need to talk about it. Period. And however I found out about it or you found out about it, whatever is, if it's true, it doesn't matter. So Paul just rats Chloe right on out. You know why? Because it's the right thing to do. When you come to somebody and say, hey, I need to talk to you about something, and then they say, well, how do you know about this? You're like, well, I can't tell you that. Are you 14? I don't, that is pathetic. It's pathetic. Okay, I'm done. Moving on. Just do what the Bible does, okay? Let's only talk about things that are true, and when they're true, let's have an honest and open, truthful conversation about it. Amen? Okay, there you go. So, Chloe, I'm guessing after this letter came to Corinth, probably wasn't the most popular person in Corinth Corinth for a while. She probably, you know, when she came in town. But you know what? Who cares? She did the right thing. Amen? Yes. And aren't we thankful that what God's going to say to us today, he used Chloe. When, when I prayed a few minutes ago before we studied this, I said what I always say. I asked for God to give ears to hear, hearts to receive. And what was the third thing I asked for? Courage. Courage. To apply. Put on your big boy pants and have adult conversations about truthful things. And if somebody doesn't like it, they'll get over it. Amen. You don't want to be in junior high anymore. I don't think. Let's hope not. It was super awkward for you. I remember. So here's the point. No, you didn't know me. Here's the point. Okay? What's going on in Corinth is God wants us to see how pride is so interwoven into our flesh. It's such a part of who we are that even when we live in a culture that is going morally off the rails as fast as you could possibly imagine, we still can find things to argue about and be divisive about in the church. Think about this for a second. Corinth. Think about what's going on in Corinth. Like, it's... it's, mind-boggling the immorality that's happening there and Paul is writing a letter and he's having to say hello uh, instead of us having a conversation about all these horrific things that are happening outside the doors of the church that you should be engaging and ministering to and shining a light out there so people can see we're having to have a conversation about you're arguing about spiritual things Instead of working on missional things. Now that doesn't happen today, does it? 
That's not prevalent in this culture, is it? See, here's, here's what the Corinthians were doing. They were attaching themselves. That's what all this, well, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas. They were attaching themselves to certain people within the church, okay, to exalt themselves over other Christians. Now, where did they learn this? They had grown up in a culture that had been doing this all of their lives. And then they became new creations in Christ. They were all called to be saints, but they lost their identity because they, they, they brought the culture into the church. They reverted back in the flesh, just like we do, to the things that we used to do and the, things that, the people that we used to be, even though we're not those people anymore. Remember the duck? Illustration? Yeah. And so what happens, here, here's what happens all the time, is that people in the church want to create a cultural narrative in a spiritual context. And this is how it works. There's varsity Christians and there's JV Christians. And some people are varsity and some people are JV. And whatever you happen to be, then you would promote that as varsity, obviously. And then other people would be And so here's what they would do. They would say, well, I am connected to Paul because Paul, let's face it, he founded this church. I was here in the very beginning when the church started, when Paul started. And so I'm connected to Paul, which makes me more spiritually uh, superior to you because I'm connected to him. And then there's other people that are like, well, I don't care. I'm connected to Apollos. Now, the Bible tells us about Apollos. He'd be somebody to be connected to because he was... He was an eloquent man who was very competent in the Scriptures, the Bible says in the book of Acts. And so he was a great orator, a great speaker. And so people connect him. They go, well, you might like Paul, but, but I'm, I'm with Apollos. I like the way he preaches. I like the way he, he explains things. I like the way he handles the Scriptures. Then you got other people that are like, no, I'm with Cephas. That means Peter, the Apostle Peter, the rock. And they're like, well, I'm with Peter because... Because Jesus entrusted the church to Peter. Now, I could start a whole denomination. Because I'm with Peter. We have a pope. He's connected to Peter. And then isn't it peculiar? It says, I follow Christ. Well, that's strange. I mean, why would it... Say, I follow Christ. I mean, shouldn't we all follow Christ? I mean, how do we have negative, 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 and then I follow Christ in the same grouping? Well, let's think about it for a second. What you have is the same thing you have today. You have people in the church who don't say, oh, I'm with Paul or Cephas or Apollos, but I follow Christ in a way that I follow Christ. I have a very unique relationship with Jesus. See, I hear from Jesus in a special way. I'm closer to Jesus than most people. I have a very direct line with Jesus. Now, if that's you this morning, then you should do with your 
special, close, unique, direct line with Jesus, what everyone else who said what you're saying about yourself did. Start a cult. Because that's the source and genesis of every cult that's ever been, is someone who says, oh, I have a special revelation. And so I believe in Jesus, but we have a special revelation of Jesus, and so we're going to lure you into our cult. Oh, just ignore all the apostles' doctrine that, that's been taught for 2,000 years. We're, gonna, we're not going to say that's untrue. We're just going to say that what we have is more true. True story. Now, this is funny to me. I'm driving down Dito Road about two weeks ago, and I see it's, it's uh, man, it's cold, it's windy, it's kind of rainy, and there's these two guys. Now, I've never seen this before, and I'm an expert at this. But this was a new one on me. I feel like they all know me, like I'm identified. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, there's these two guys, and they're sitting there on Dito Road, and they have this big poster board, and it says, and it says Free Book of Mormon. And so I'm driving by, and I look at that, and I got so tickled because I thought to myself, ain't nobody pulling up there like, hey, could, you think I could get one of them Book of Mormons from you? Like, I mean... Come on, you're on, it's just, it just got me tickled. I'm thinking, you know, you better get back on the bicycle and start going back knocking on doors because this deal here is not going to work. So I went to where I was going. So then on the way back, I was thinking, you know, I, I might, I need, maybe I should stop. You know, let's see what. So I pull up and they've got the sign flipped around and they wrote, and, and they hand wrote, free Bibles. Because no one wanted the Book of Mormon. So they started tricking people and saying free Bibles. And then they would try to give them the Book of Mormon. So you're like, hey, can I get one of those Bibles? And they're like, and I go, that's not a Bible. No, no, I mean a Bible. No, no, this is, no, no. Let me show you. This is a Bible. Anyway, I thought it was pretty funny that they flipped the sign around. But the point is, so there's people that claim to have this special revelation. But this whole varsity, JV, Christianity thing, it exists everywhere. you got, you got churches filled with people, and they're, they're, they will teach a doctrine that says, look, you know, okay, we're all Christians, but when you speak in tongues, then you're, you get the extra blessing. You get the more second baptism. You get the, see, there's all these ways that we try to figure out these varsity level segments in Christianity. That's what's going on here. Now, let me make clear something, okay? Paul is not in any way saying that it's wrong to follow certain teachers, biblical teachers. And the way we know that is because here's what he's going to say in chapter 4. He's going to say, now, you have countless guides in Christ, but you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel, and I urge you then, be imitators of me. Multiple times in 1 Corinthians, he's going to tell them to imitate him. So he's not saying that it's wrong for us to follow certain teachers. That's not the behavior that's the problem. The problem is, remember the context of what all this is about? What happens when we elevate certain teachers within the church or 
whatever it may be. We then connect our identity to those teachers. The problem is not following a, a teacher. The problem is finding your identity. So they're going, oh, I'm in Camp Paul or I'm in Camp Apollos. And they were, they were, it was affecting their identity. And see, here's what happens. Whenever we start creating this, uh, this elevation of human achievement in the church... What happens? See, in order for that to happen, in order for that to operate within your heart, you have to step off the cliff of comparison. Comparison. You see, you're, you can't be varsity. You can't be, think of it this way. Don't even think of it that way. Think of it, think of it, what makes you distinct? We live in a culture that is obsessed, obsessed on every level with distinction. When you got in your car to come to church this morning, you couldn't drive down, you, you didn't get out of your neighborhood. And you know what you saw? Houses in your neighborhood are telling you their distinction. They have signs, banners, things. They want you to know what makes them distinct about their yard or their house or their family or their this or their that. And their cars, they're on our cars. They're on everything we prize, distinction. Now, we don't think of it as human achievement, but what is it? Well, yes, it is. It's ways that we sort of make things up or we're attracted to things that, that make distinction about us. And what, once you do that, you step off the cliff of, cliff of comparison. And what happens when we compare? Well, inevitably, it results in us we, we look somewhere other than Christ to determine our value and our worth and our happiness. You see, because what happens is, well, I'm distinct. Now, we don't think of those distinctions as being inherently evil at all. We just think, well, that's just me. Is that how we think of it? Or do you think of it, that's just you in comparison to others? in distinction to others. Paul says in Romans 12 that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. See, we ought not do that. Now, instead of looking at the negative, I want us to flip it around and look at the positive because the, the Bible is going to counter that thinking in both directions. So let's take the positive track. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male nor female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now I want us to think about this for a few minutes, okay? There's neither Jew nor Greek. What kind of distinction is that, Jew and Greek? That's a racial distinction. And so the Bible's saying that there are no racial distinctions within the church. Now, notice what the Bible does not say. The Bible doesn't say 
there are both Jew and Greek. It doesn't say that. It says there are neither, which is very different. So what is the Bible communicating? No distinction racially in the church. None, biblically. Then, then the Bible says slave or free. Now, what is that distinction? You have the oppressed and the oppressor. And what you have is no distinction between those two. So no racial distinction, no cultural distinction, and then male or female, no gender distinction. So what the Bible is telling us is the opposite of what is happening in our culture right now. Our, the, the church, the modern church of today is riddled with the heresy that was attacking the church at Corinth. This idea that there's something about you and there's something about me that makes you special or me special, makes us special in some way within the body of Christ. It makes me better than you. Because if it's special, then it's better. What happens is if we start going off this track, it's going to get bad quickly. See, Jesus comes along and he wants us to understand that, that whatever it is that makes us different. You see, because what the goal here is not uniformity. The Bible's not interested in a bunch of carbon copies. The God who invented creativity is not interested in a bunch of carbon copies. What the Bible is calling us to, what we've been called to as believers, is unity in the midst of our diversity. And that our diversity is celebrated in such a way where comparison is eradicated from our community. Because it is heresy. It's heresy. You see, whatever makes you different from other Christians is not to be your focus. Because it doesn't elevate you or me in any way. There's no, there's no black Christians or white Christians. They're just Christians. There's no rich Christians or poor Christians. There's just Christians. There's no male Christians or female Christians. There's just Christians. There's Christians that happen to be male or Christians that happen to be female. But one's not better than the other or one's not less than the other. Rich aren't better than poor. Poor is not, you know, underneath rich. No, that's not how that works. That we lay all of that down when we come into the body of Christ. Because if we don't, comparison will always lead us to resent God's goodness in other people's lives while ignoring His blessing in our own. What this heresy does is it creates this sort of mindset within us. where we struggle to be grateful for the things that God's done in our life. Now, let me show you how the breadcrumbs flow, okay? You have a gratitude problem, 
I don't, I don't mean you specifically, personally. I just mean we have a gratitude problem today in the church. Big time. So if we follow the breadcrumbs, so whatever it is on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being you're majorly grateful all the time, 1 being you struggle with it big time, wherever you are that you think you are on that grab, whatever, on that chart, you pick a number, that's where you are. How do we discern what's going on there? What is the problem with your, what's your gratitude problem? If you follow the breadcrumbs from ingratitude, you know what they're going to lead you to? Comparison. If you've got a gratitude problem, you've got a comparison problem. Because that's how the gratitude problem got to where it is. Now, now you're at the comparison problem. You're like, well, I, I do kind of come to think of it. Maybe, maybe you say it this way. I'm just competitive by nature. No, you're not. You're sinful by nature. You're sinful. So you have a gratitude problem. We followed the breadcrumbs that got you to comparison problem. Now where do the breadcrumbs go? Are we done? No. No, no. Comparison is just another symptom. Now we're going to follow the breadcrumbs from comparison, and what are we going to find? you got an identity problem. You see, the reason you got trapped in comparison is because you're trying to Find other means of identifying yourself, making yourself significant, making yourself matter, finding your, 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 your role, your place. Your, that's the problem. So see, what, what, if, if I could drive this, this, this one sentence I'm about to say somehow home, like all week I've prayed, God, please let hearts hear what I'm about to say. Like if you could just get this. I didn't even put it on your handout because I want you to listen. External validation will never ever fill an internal void. External validation will never, ever fill an internal void. You want to talk about that for a second? You want to talk about a culture seeking external validation like no other culture ever has. Social media. Young people today, they post something and then they immediately are seeing how many likes or comments are. It's external validation. There, it's, it's bred in them like, like nothing I've ever seen. Let them be without a phone for a couple days. I don't mean a couple minutes. I mean a couple days. I mean, what, what do you do when you leave the house? You get in your car and you leave the house and you get five minutes down the road and you realize you left your phone at home? What is wrong with you? 
Are you insane? Do you not remember? You grew up your whole stinking life. You never had a phone. You couldn't call anybody. Nobody knew where you were. You're okay. But no, we freak, man. It's the end of the world. We got to go. We going back home. You come in there, son. I mean, you coming in hot. Where's my phone? You need another device to locate your phone. You ever been in the phone store and someone that lost their phone comes in? Like their hair's on fire. They're like, you know what I mean? Like there's a line. They're like, you know, trying to, I'll give you 30 bucks if I get in front of you. You know, what is wrong with us? We need external validation. So, see, we, this is what we do. We use external validation to, to elevate ourselves. This will be fun. We humble brag, don't we? Come on. You post on social media. So tired after working out at the gym two hours today. Dot, dot, dot. Man, am I out of shape. Why did you post that? What do you want us to know about you? That you're out of shape? I don't think so. You humble brag. It's pathetic. It is pathetic. But we go way further than that. We spiritual brag. See, we, we put a post on social media that shows that we gave some money and supported a homeless ministry in our community. Hmm. Now, should we support a homeless ministry in our community? Sure. Is that a bad thing? No. Mm-mm. Or will we, shouldn't we uh, generate uh, social awareness of issues? Mm-hmm. But here's my question. What does Jesus have to say about that? Not me. Not you. What does Jesus say? Let's ask him. He said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He's not done. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. He's not done. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Thus says the Lord. Now, if we just move on right now, there's a bunch of you going to be really messed up. 
Because you don't understand what I just read. And I want you to understand. God wants you to understand. So let's understand. Okay? What is Jesus not saying here in the Sermon on the Mount? He's clearly not saying beware of practicing righteousness. He's not saying that. And he's clearly not saying beware of practicing righteousness so that other people can see you. Which some of you would be completely in error thinking that that's what that's just said. That is not what it says. Because just before that in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what Jesus said. Let your light shine before others so that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying don't practice righteousness, clearly. And he's not saying don't practice righteousness so other people can see, clearly. That's not what he's saying. And when he gets to giving, he's not saying, as some people wrongly think, the Bible doesn't say, don't ever let anybody know what you give. That is not true. Remember we studied the book of Acts? Remember the, the Bible makes a big deal publicly about people giving. In particular, remember Barnabas? It was a big deal because of Barnabas' gift. And the Bible publicly makes that known. That's not what that's saying. So what is it saying? What is, what is all of this? How does all of this fit together? How do we reconcile the culture that's, that's gotten all in us and we're so confused we don't even know how it works. We don't even know what's going on. We can't even tell the difference. We don't even know what Jesus is saying and what the culture is saying because it's so blurry. Listen. Jesus isn't talking about doing things in secrecy. He's talking about motive. Motive. What is at issue in the Sermon on the Mount? What is at issue in the church at Corinth? And what is rampantly, unbelievably at issue in the church of today is motive. Why? What is it that you are trying to accomplish? What is it that you want people to... You want people to see the distinction about you. You want people to see the thing. You want people to see things so that it elevates you. You don't even think of it in terms of... You don't necessarily go, well, I want to be seen as better than someone else. You just want to be seen as better. Why? So here's my question. The question we should be asking is this. Is there a disconnect between your public passion to things and your private commitment to them? That's the question. You see, the issue is not keeping the good things that you do a secret. That's not the issue. What is the issue? The issue is trying to present yourself as someone you're not that is the issue don't do things to make yourself look like something you're not 
Don't do that ever. Don't ever do that. You know what that's called? Hypocrisy. And do you know what the strongest words that your Lord and Savior had for any group of people on the planet Earth? Hypocrites. Now, lest you be confused somehow and think that I'm somehow against social media, I love social media. I think social media is one of the most fantastic things in the world, primarily because you get to see pictures of people's grandkids. Amen. There ain't nothing better than that, right? Listen, you know what I love? I love being able to celebrate milestones with you. I love that. I love being able to celebrate milestones with your family. I love being able to pray for you with with understanding and knowledge because of social media. In other words, you see, there's so many wonderful ways that we can utilize social media for good. Let me give you an example. I've touched on this before, but I've never really told this story before. But there's a, there's a young man in our church. He was in the first service today. And last year he got saved. And man, God just, he saved him. It's like everybody gets saved. Turns his world upside down. And man, he's growing. He's being discipled. It's just amazing. He's a totally, if you, if, if you knew him then and you know him now, you wouldn't even know he's the same person. But here's how that happened. When his life fell apart, when everything crashed in around him, he, he, didn't, he didn't grow up in a Christian home, didn't have Christian people around him, but everything fell apart. And so he didn't know what to do, where to turn, who to talk to, but he remembered. He remembered when he was in high school, there was this lady who was always posting Christian things on social media and always, you know, just putting Bible verses and being encouraging. And, and he remembered her and he thought, if anyone can help me, she can. And so he messaged her and they started a conversation, which then led him to a conversation with me, which then led to all these things that have happened in his life. And it's just a beautiful picture of how you can use something for good. But let me just leave you with this last reminder or reality. Okay? Before you react in public, react at home, react at work, Or post anything online. Remind yourself of this one thing. You are an ambassador of Jesus Christ. Be careful. Be careful. You're not representing you. You're representing someone far greater than you.
Jesus is not going to give you a pass because of the culture. The Word of God is the standard. So let's make sure that we know what he says and what he means by what he says. Look at verse 13. He's, look at Paul. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Look, what is, what is, is Christ divided? That is an allusion to an illustration of the body. Divided. Later on, he's just setting the seed. Now, later on, he's going to get into this whole conversation about how we're the body. And what happens if the, if the parts of the body don't cooperate with each other. And this, this whole issue of, we're, is Christ divided? No. You know why? Because we're unified as a body. And then he says, was Paul crucified for you? What is that, what is that talking about? Was Paul crucified for you? What is crucifixion? Crucifixion is the work accomplished by God on our behalf. And he's saying, we're unified as the body of Christ. We're unified by the work of Christ. The work of Christ is what brought us into the body of Christ, right? And then he says, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is baptism? Baptism is a public profession or identification as a follower of Christ. And he's saying, you were born into the body of Christ by the work of Christ to be the witness of Christ in everywhere you go and everything you do. And all of those things unify you, don't divide you. Verse 14, so I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. I, did not, I also baptized Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. It sounds strange, like Paul's having this senior moment, like, I don't really know what happened. Maybe some people got baptized, I don't know. And people just get this so messed up. Listen, do you think Paul is in any way denigrating baptism? Of course not. Well, I mean, what is the context? Obviously, what is happening here? He's appalled at the abuse of baptism. The point of all of this is that you would use baptism even to try to elevate yourself above other people? Yes. Because Christians have brought the culture into the church. And that's what the culture does. The culture will use anything. In our culture, if you want to elevate yourself, what do you do? Distinguish yourself. You know the greatest self-elevating tool in our culture you can use today? Come on. It's so simple. I'm a victim. That's all you got to say. The minute you say you're a victim, you go to the top. What does that mean? I'm distinguishing myself. I'm different from you because I'm a victim. I'm not saying you're not a victim. I'm just simply saying, when did we start elevating distinctions like this? And so everyone's got their distinction in the church. Bizarre. You see, it has nothing to do with who baptizes you. It's only and always about the one who saved you. That's the whole point. When a person gets baptized, who cares who's baptizing them? That's not the point. The point is who saved them, who they're identifying with, right? So look at how he pulls it all together in verse 17. It's amazing. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power? Okay, hold on. Let's think this through for a second. Remember last week in the opening of the letter, the first point of last week's sermon was, number one, you've been called. It's the first thing Paul said. You need to fix your identity. You need to know you've been called. But what have you been, are you just, has it just been a generic call upon your life? No, it's been a specific call. God didn't just call you. It's not like your mom, you know, like when you were a kid and you were outside and they just, she just hollered, Tony! And your friends are like, your mom's calling. What does she want? You're like, I don't know. I guess go see. That's not that kind of call. It's the kind of call where when God called, he was calling you to something. It wasn't, he wasn't just calling your name. He was calling you to something specific. He's calling you. To be a part of his family. He's calling you to be a saint. He's calling us. And so, look, he's, he's called. He didn't call Paul to baptize. He called him to preach the gospel, right? Yeah. But how can something... Look at, look at the end of verse 17. Then, then we'll be done. And you can go eat. Because you look hungry. Just saying. Is there something that you and I could do? Brian's starving. He's, can you hear his stomach literally growling from here? It's ridiculous. If anyone has a tic-tac, Pastor Brian's hurting over here. Is there something that we can do that can suck the power out of the cross of Christ? The most powerful thing that has ever happened? The source of transformation for all of mankind? The genesis of all of our hope and all of our victory? In other words, no matter what we do, that power remains. What he did is powerful regardless of what we do, right? Clearly, we can't take the power out of that. We got that straight? Okay, so we got that. So what then must this mean? It must mean that we could live in such a way. Listen. You could live in such a way. As it would be as if. The cross were emptied of its power. It wouldn't empty it. But it would be as if it was. How? What, what does this mean? What in the world could be more catastrophic than that? How does the cross resolve everything I've talked about with you this morning? How does the cross fix all of our identity problems? All of our division problems? All of our comparison problems? All of our gratitude problems? How does the cross... The power of the cross, how does it fix everything? Because at the foot of the cross, 
every single one of us is the same. The same. It doesn't matter how smart you think you are. doesn't matter how successful you are. doesn't matter how many bad things you've done, how long it's been, what your past is, what your origin, uh, family of origin is. doesn't matter what your socioeconomic upbringing was. It doesn't matter. At the foot of the cross, everyone's even. Don't you understand? The cross obliterates all division because every person, regardless of race, gender, uh, economics, intellect, it does not matter. Every person comes to the cross and is 100% equal. Equal. That's the best news ever. It resolves all the tension, all the problems. The, what we need to do is rid this place of the culture. Rid it. It has no place here. It does not belong here. Let me explain something to you. There is no person here more special than someone else. No one. I am not different than you. I am the same as you. I am at the foot of the cross next to you. We're the same. I'm a son. You're a son. Or you're a daughter. I'm a son. We're just children in a family with the same father at the same cross in the same place with the same need. See, we all 100% deserve nothing. And we all 100% received everything. So if we're going to boast in anything, the only thing it could be is what? The cross. So there's no conversation about anybody being better than anybody else. And there's no need for you to try to validate yourself or elevate yourself. Or, because we're the same. We're the same. Don't you see? We are the same. The cross dictates how we, how we operate in our marriages, in our families, in our, at, at our jobs, in traffic, at the store, with our mouth, with our language. Everything is dictated and, and, and managed by the cross. And the cross says we're all the same. We're all the same. No one's special. No one. So you know how to fix your identity? Put your identity in the cross. You, you know what makes you distinct? Do you know what changes the world? A group of people who share an identity in the cross change the world. They change the world. You know why? Because they, they love each other in a way that's unique. They serve each other in a way that's unique. They, they're not distracted by trying to do all the things that are going on in the culture. May it be so of us. May it be so. I dream of a day when we can all come in this place. And we'd rid ourselves of all this ridiculous nonsense. of trying to validate ourselves. I dream of a day when we'd come to church and there wouldn't be anybody here who would look down on anybody else for any reason. Ever. 
because their identity was in the cross. I dream of a day when you'd come to church and you'd be free of all the places in your life where you compare yourself to other people and all the debilitating ways that you bring the culture in here where it does not belong. And you feel insufficient or unimportant because of the way you look or the way you are or your knowledge of Scripture or whatever the case may be. There's no place for that here. Jesus wants that banished from his family. The cross is level ground. Period. For all of us. Yes, we're different. Yes, we have distinctions. But what is most important about us is the same. It's the same. So what we need is we need to find ourselves in the gospel, not in anything else. Because all other things are going to lead us to places we don't want to go. As a matter of fact, the places that many of us are. Listen to me. Especially you young ladies in the room. External validation will never, ever, ever fill an internal need. Ever. You can't. You can't. There's freedom at the cross. The cross tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1 that we're chosen forever. In 2 Corinthians 3, that we've been changed permanently. 2 Corinthians 5, that we become new creations. Ephesians chapter 1 says we're forever forgiven. Galatians 3 says that we're eternally blessed. Revelation 12 says that we are now permanently victorious. John chapter 8 says we've been set free. 1 Peter 2 says that we've been healed. Romans chapter 8 says that we are free forever from condemnation. Then Romans goes on to say that we're more than a conqueror and that we're dead to sin and we're alive with Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 says that we are permanently and forever accepted in Him. Ephesians 2, 5 says we are 100% complete in Him because of the cross. 